And our scripture this morning, uh, scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the third week that we're in this text in Matthew chapter 16. Just to back up a bit to kind of lay the groundwork of this chapter. If you've not been here, you can get a fuller context of that online if you'd like it. But this is the turning point now of these years of Jesus' ministry. We've talked about that. He spent a year in obscurity, the second year somewhat popular. And now he's turned to the year of opposition. And in this year of opposition, he also has turned his attention from an outward focus, really, to to doing lots of signs to the multitudes, to an inward focus primarily to the disciples. He'll still do some of the other, but mostly he will deal with the twelve and a few more. Mostly he will deal with that inner circle. It seems to me, I hope it seems to you, that it would be really good to pay attention to what he says. Because he's taking those twelve, those who he will leave, in one sense, the church in their hands and the message in their hands to dispense it to the nations. And he's now got a year to prepare them. A year to give them what they're going to need in order to fulfill the mission that he's given them. And so I think we should listen Intently, We should listen carefully to those things. The first thing that he talked about in Matthew chapter 16 is he said, Beware of the leaven of the religious leaders, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we have talked about that a couple of times. We've talked about it most recently, two weeks ago. And what he was really talking about there was two things. Beware of those who say that the gospel isn't enough. That was the Pharisees. If you would liken their camp, it's those who say the gospel's not enough. It's not sufficient. You need to add to it. That's really been the air again and again and again in the church. The gospel's not enough. Oh, we need it. We need Christ to die. But you have to add to it. And if you add enough to it, you then will somehow merit eternal life. That's, that's what a Pharisee does. It's not sufficient. It's not enough. Not that it's not necessary. It's just not enough. And that's a treadmill that you don't want to get on. And that's a treadmill that you want to make sure that you do everything you can to not give that impression to others as we take the gospel and we dispense it. The gospel is sufficient. Jesus finished the work. The wrath was put fully on him for all who will cling to him. He bore it fully and completely. 
And he sat down at the right hand of the Father because the work is finished. And, and the gospel is about us having our eyes open to see it. To see it not just intellectually, but to see it in our hearts. To treasure that gospel. That's what it means, I think, to be a believer. We begin to treasure it. Not completely, not fully. We don't see fully the treasure it is ever until we're glorified, until we're in His presence and all sin is gone. But there's a sense in which we see it. We take it as the treasure that it is. We don't try to add to it. We just rest in the treasure. But Pharisees don't do that. And the, 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 the danger of the Sadducees was different. It wasn't that it wasn't sufficient. It was that it wasn't necessary. They are the camp of today who say that the gospel is not necessary. Oh, Jesus was a good moral teacher and you can learn a lot. But when you talk about death and dying and a cross and wrath and propitiation and all of that kind of stuff, let's leave that aside. That's too heavy. We don't need to to worry about that. In other words, the cross wasn't necessary. It was necessary. We'll look again at this passage where Jesus says, I must, I must. Don't let anybody tell you the cross is not necessary. It is central to the Christian life. And anybody who does not have the right view of the cross and of the gospel is in great danger. Whether you say it's not sufficient enough or whether you say we don't need it. Both heirs we're to run away from. And today our world is full of it. It's full of those who say it's not sufficient. Here, let me tell you how to add to it. And it's full of those who would want to discount it and want to say it's archaic. Some even have said it's divine child abuse in writing. It's none of that. It is sufficient and it is necessary. And beware of anyone that tells you anything else than that. But then he goes on. Last week we talked about that. We looked at the rebuke of Peter. And we looked at Peter's confession first. And you find it here where he turns to Peter, he turns to the disciples and he says, Who do you say that I am? Or who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter's confession is there. He makes this grand confession of Christ. Now I don't think Peter understood that he was God. But he understood enough to make a confession that he would never be able to back up from. Peter was too far in now to ever back up. And Christ had this confession. The disciples made this confession. And now he takes these these months to prepare these disciples, to prepare them. And oh, they needed preparation. All of us do. That's why we need to pay attention to what he says. It's interesting here. I I said last week, take time to really look at Peter's life. Think about it. Think about the context. Think about the situation. I think for Peter, when he made the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he got a lot of things right. He didn't have the full picture yet. He didn't understand that Jesus, in fact, was God. But he got lots of it right. But still in his heart, some stuff was stirring around. There were some things, I think, going on in his heart that, that it was going to take yet some months and really wouldn't fully, fully get cared for 
to the degree that it needed to make Peter effective for the kingdom until after the resurrection. There was stuff stirring, just like stirs in your heart and my heart. I think Peter thought, I've got a hold of something pretty, pretty unique here. He realized when he made that confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was saying, you are the one that was promised. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You are that person and that one. You are that deliverer. And I think it did some things with Peter's heart. He, he knew he had a hold of something that was big. Bigger than he was. And you know what happens when, when that happens around you. you. There's something tantalizing about that. There's something intoxicating about that to our hearts. And I think it was intoxicating to Peter. I think it was tantalizing to Peter and to the disciples. He was one of the insiders here. He was on the inside track. You know what that does to your heart when you're an insider and how, how dangerous that can be sometimes when you're the insider and you have the inside scoop. Again, how intoxicating that kind of stuff can be. I think Peter also had visions of grandeur. I think he had visions. Oh my, where is this going to take me? And he thought it was going to take him some wonderful places at that point. I think that's what was stirring. Now, why do I think that? You just turn over a couple of chapters. Turn over to to Matthew chapter 20. This is why I think it. Not the only reason. I think it because of what Jesus told him next. But I also think it because of this particular incident in Matthew chapter 20. Let me read it to you. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to set one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to set at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, that's two. That wasn't Peter, but look at the next line. Look at the next verse. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were mad. They were angry. Remember when we talked about angry in our prayer time? They were not angry for the sake of the kingdom. They were angry for the sake of their kingdom. You see? You see this group that Jesus brought to himself? You see this group that he opened their eyes to see some things? There was work yet to be done in their hearts. Their hearts were, were needing some some work. Just like our hearts need work. Just because we have seen. Just because we have we've had our eyes open to, to see who Jesus is. And embrace Him and begin to treasure Him. Our hearts need lots of work. These disciples' hearts needed lots of work. And that's exactly what Jesus went about doing. When He says down in verse 21. Look at, look at what He begins to tell them as we looked at last week. He has many things to tell him, but he starts right here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he would rise. From this time on, Jesus began to work on their hearts. Began to deal with what he saw. He knew what was going on. He knew what was swirling inside of them. He knew what he had to give them, what he had to teach them, what they needed to know. It's the same kinds of things that we need to know. It's interesting, the rebuke. You see the rebuke there? After he tells them that, Peter pops up again and he says, This will never happen. It will not be so. What's going on? Think Jesus is concerned about Jesus' kingdom? Maybe a titch. Maybe more than he would have before the confession. But it's very mixed. It's very mixed. I think all that other stuff, all that intoxicating kind of stuff that I talked about, it was mixed right with that. And that's why I think the rebuke was so strong. I think that's why Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's not about my kingdom primarily. It's about your kingdom. And until it's about my kingdom, you will not be very helpful to me. And that's true of us. All of us here in this room. All of us here in this room need to go back to that question I ask. You think about it this week. You think about the question when you're tempted toward anger this week. Why am I getting agitated? Is it my kingdom or his kingdom? I think the, the road of maturity in the Christian life is certainly not a road of perfection. But I think that road of maturity is that more and more, we understand what we've lost. We understand the shalom that once was. But also, we have an ache in our soul for the loss. We have an ache in our soul that causes us to have anger rise up, a proper, righteous kind of anger that rises up for the sake of the kingdom, for His kingdom, and the loss of what's been lost. And a cry for the restoration of that. Well, that's what Jesus was about doing, I think. That's what he was doing with these disciples now for this year. He was working on that. And he wasn't above stinging them and stinging them severely. Severe mercy, they used to call it. It was merciful to Peter for him to do what he did. But I think it sent Peter reeling. I don't think we have any concept of what that felt like to Peter. When Jesus made that, it caught him, I think, totally by surprise. It just, it, he didn't see it coming anywhere. But it was the beginning of God continuing to work on his heart, continuing to deal with his heart. See that as mercy when God does that. It may sting, it may hurt, but it is mercy. That's the God we have. That's the God who's begun a good work in your life if He's begun it. And He's a God who's committed to finishing that work. And here He was finishing the work He'd begun in the disciples as their confession 
was made. Now, what I want to do this morning for the rest of our time is I want to look at the passage that was read. I want to look particularly at that passage that was read from Mark's lens. So turn over to the book of Mark. Same context, same passage, but he amplifies it a bit. And so we want to look at it from Mark's eyes as he looks at these words of Jesus. He adds a few things to them that I think are helpful here. But what I want you to do as you do this is don't take it out of the context now. One of the reasons I like to preach in series and I like to preach through uh, books, in this case we're preaching through the Gospels, not just one particular Gospel, but the four Gospels chronologically. The reason I like to do that is because you get things in context. Now all of us have heard, I'm sure, probably, take up my, your cross and follow me. I, there might be some here that haven't heard that, but for the most part you've heard, heard it someplace. You know that's a familiar passage to you. But look at the context it comes in. It comes in the context of Jesus beginning to teach His disciples some things. Beginning to teach His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of religious leaders. He must die and on the third day be raised. Keep it in that context now as He then turns to them after he's made those statements and talked about the cross that he will go to, although they didn't necessarily know that's all that it would be here at this point, he turns to them and says, now take up your cross. So here really he says and talks about his cross, but he talks about their cross. It's interesting in this passage now, let me read it, because Mark amplifies it a bit. He he adds a little bit to it that that in Matthew's Gospel is left out. Beginning at verse 34, He called to Him the crowd with His disciples and He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The verse that I want to lift out, the verse that Matthew does not include, I think helps give meaning to the greater context of this, and that is verse 38. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Strong words, aren't they? Whoever is ashamed of me. What? What does that mean to be ashamed of Christ? Well, let's flip it. What does it mean to not be ashamed? To not be ashamed of Christ and His words, I think, would be things like we admire them. We uh, are not embarrassed to be seen with Him or them, those words. Or we love to be identified with Him. The opposite is all of those things. Admiration, um, lack of embarrassment, 
being labeled or, or connected or a loving to be identified with Him. All of that, I think, is the opposite. So, so ashamed, whatever it means, means the opposite of that. That we're embarrassed. That we don't want to be identified with Him. That we don't admire Him. And strong words are here. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, so will the Son of Man also be ashamed. That's pretty strong language. Pretty strong statement. I don't think that's a momentary lapse. I don't think that necessarily means that last week, when you knew you maybe need to name the name of Christ to somebody, you faltered. I don't think it means just those momentary times when that may happen. I think it's bigger than that. And I think as we begin to see it, it will help us with those kinds of times. I think Jesus says in this passage, a Christian is one who wants to be identified with me but he wants to be identified with me and a proper understanding of me. You see, Peter Peter didn't have it all right. He had lots of it right. Much of it right. But those visions of grandeur had to be tempered. Jesus had to teach him what it really meant to be identified with this Messiah. He was right. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the one that all Israel was waiting for. But it wasn't going to kind of work out exactly like Peter had it in his mind. And so he needed to be taught some things. He needed to be taught about the cross. He not only needed to be about the cross that Christ would bear, but he needed to be taught about the cross that he would be required to bear as well. And you see, that's what Jesus does now for the next months. Teaches his disciples about the cross he will bear and the cross they will bear. And he says, if you're ashamed of that, I will be ashamed of you. In essence, what I think he's meaning there, if, if you're ashamed of it, then your hope is not in it. And if your hope is not in it, you are lost. Look at the text here a minute. Look at If you take it kind of backwards to front instead of front to backwards, You see, it has a progression coming down this way. But if you take it and start with the verse that I started with and you back up, I think you get a better meaning of the context of that passage. Because it says here, if you're ashamed, but then if you take the next way, for what can a man give in return for his own life? See, if we're working backwards to these things. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, if you back up with that, if you're ashamed of Christ, if you're ashamed of the cross, then you have no hope. Because you're putting your hope someplace else. And where you're putting your hope has no hope in it beyond the grave. To be ashamed of Christ means that I have not cast my confidence on Him that I have not put my faith in Him, that His wrath I don't believe, or my wrath I don't believe was poured out on Him. See, that's what it means to be ashamed of that. That somehow that is, that is uh, juvenile. Somehow that, 
That can't be. Somehow that's not where I'm putting my hope. But he says, if you aren't ashamed of me, and, and to not be ashamed of me, you begin to see that, in fact, is your hope. That, in fact, is your life. That, in fact, is a treasure that you need to show the world. And you need to be glad to be identified with. Because if you're not identified with it, all the three other things will not help you one iota. If you gain the whole world, it won't buy your soul. It won't help your soul one bit. Only this, only this, only me, and being identified with me, and identified with my suffering, because it is that very suffering that is your hope. Do you see? I think that's what that text is saying to us. And so to be ashamed of it means you're not putting your hope there. To be ashamed of it means it has no value to you. To being ashamed of it means it's worthlessness. It's foolishness. That's exactly the way the world sees it. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But we who believe it is the power of God to salvation. This morning, I hope you hear the words And they are a great treasure to you when Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I must die. And on the third day, I must be raised from the dead. And you like it so much in Mark chapter 8 that you turn over to Mark chapter 9. Turn with me. In Mark chapter 9, you read it again in verse 31. And it says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him, and after three days He will rise. And then you like it so much that you turn to Mark chapter 10 and verse 33, and you read it. Excuse me, I just read 33, didn't I? Turn to Mark 9.31. You read Mark 9.31 where it says, The Son of God, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, He will see. Jesus, three different times in the book of Mark, said it. He said it again and again to His disciples. He was going to repeat it. And the interesting thing is, remember, It was after the resurrection, wasn't it? It was after the resurrection that all of it began to click for the disciples. They began to remember that He said it. But the point of all of this is, if we're ashamed, if we're ashamed of that, if we're ashamed of the cross, then we have no hope. If we don't want to be identified with the cross, then you can go find something else to be identified with, but it won't save you. You may turn to other things for life, but they won't give you life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you're ashamed of me, there's no hope. This is the hope. Be identified with me. Let the cross be the center. 
Because what this accomplishes is what I talked about last week. Remember at the beginning of the service, we had that passage of Scripture, Proverbs 17, 15. Remember that again? I hope you chewed on that this week. The Scripture in Proverbs says that it is an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked. Did you think about this that this week? To justify the wicked or to condemn the righteous, it says, is an abomination to the Lord. And I asked you last week, just like I asked you at the beginning this morning, do you see the gospel there? Do you see the gospel? And the point we made at the end of the service is that I must, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. And I must be raised on the third day because it is an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked. And every one of you and me included classify as the wicked. Every one of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have committed cosmic treason. And it is an abomination to the Lord to justify the wicked. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised so that I'm not an abomination to myself. Because God chose to justify those who are wicked. But He did it by His Son. You see, Jesus had to go. You see how it becomes precious to us? Do you see what it means to not be ashamed of it? It becomes a treasure to you. It becomes a treasure to you to realize that all that Jesus must do, all of this cross stuff that He talks about, is so that God can justify the wicked and not be an abomination to Himself. And then we flipped it last week and we said, It's also an abomination to the Lord to condemn the righteous. But what happens when all of the wrath gets poured on Christ? What happens when He bears the wrath of all who believe? He gives them His righteousness. He takes the punishment. He gives them His righteousness. And so God, God does not condemn the righteous doesn't condemn us. We're wicked except He took our penalty and He gave us His righteousness. He who had no sin became sin for us. He took the wrath that we might become the righteousness of God. He gives us His righteousness. He clothes us with His righteousness. That's why the cross is not something to be ashamed of. It is It is what accomplished the way that we would not be an abomination, that God would not be an abomination to Himself by what He did. You see the divine conundrum? Now, it's not a conundrum to God. It is to us. You see that? But do you begin to see? The very thing that would scare us, that if God justifies the wicked, He's an abomination, but we know because of the Gospel He can do that. Because Christ took it. But then you flip it and you begin to see that He also would be an abomination to Himself to condemn the righteous, which now we are. Once wicked, all of us. Now, if we're in Christ, righteous. And it's an abomination to our God to condemn the righteous. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ this morning, it's an abomination for Him.
to condemn you. He will not do it. He will not be an abomination to himself. He's holy. He can't. And so you see, that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about. He says, if you're ashamed of that, if you don't want to be identified with that, there's no hope. But if you do, let's let's turn it. If you do, if you do want to be identified with that, that's what it is to be a Christian. We are identified with the cross. Now, let me, let me finish this this morning by saying this. Because it says there in that passage that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. So is Jesus doing what the Pharisee does where He adds to the Gospel? In other words, yes, you need me to die, but then you need to take up your cross so you can add to it? No, I don't think that's the case. I think the case is when, when you begin to see, when you begin to understand that to not be ashamed of Him is to identify with Him. When you start to identify with Him, when the cross becomes your life, when you start to see what it does again and again and again and again, you take up your cross. You bear your cross gladly. The motivation to bear your cross is to see His cross. And the degree to which you see that cross, the degree to which that cross is precious to you, the degree to what Christ did on the cross is not something you're ashamed of, but you want to be identified with, you will pick up your cross and follow Him. If you see it that way, that's the way it works. That's why we preach the Gospel to ourselves every day. That's why I will ask you again and again and again when a passage is on the screen, do you see the Gospel there? Do you see it? Because it is in seeing that, seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ that makes us want to be identified with that. And as we're identified with that, we take up our cross and we follow Him. We're going to close this morning with a song that we learned some months ago. But it just fits perfectly this morning. All I have is Christ. All I have is Him. Is He the center? Do you glory in the cross of Christ? I pray this morning. I pray this morning in your heart of hearts more than anything else. You want that to be the center. And you're learning to live by that cross. Let's stand together. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to. That you would hold forever to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse to stay. But as I read thy help outraised, indifferent to 
as we identify with him he identifies with us oh Lord we just pray that the cross will become more and more precious in this body in Jesus name we pray amen God bless you just missed.